This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? I am indeed. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. And before we get into it with the great Fingal Ferguson, I got to do a little business. Let's just say you're in the making business and you need something to cover your axes or your hammers or your handles or your wood, your steel, your Damascus, whatever. Why don't you use something that's great and something that's food safe too, Axe Wax. Axe Wax is a great product. It is food safe, so there's no petroleum byproducts. It finishes wood and material, all sorts of steels really great. I just actually finished off a pair, a uh, pile of uh, walnut steak knives that went out the door. I use Axe Wax, and I felt confident in the fact that it is, because they're steak knives, it's nice that they are food safe. So go to axewax.us, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off. And then, let's just say I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you because you found something to do, and you like it. And now, all of a sudden, you're thinking to yourself, this hobby might be able to be more than just a hobby. Maybe I can quit my job. Maybe I don't have to work with the people I don't like anyway. Maybe I can do this on my own. But it would be great if I could figure out a way to help me get some money in, and that way it'll be more enjoyable. Get yourself a good website. Go to akinteractive.com slash fullblast and fill out the paperwork, and Andreas Kalani will get a hold of you. And then he'll help you cater your the website that you want to you, and you can build with it. You can it can grow. He can help you with the Shopify stuff and all that interesting stuff. And it's going to make, give you the boom bam. It's going to give you a great website. And then you're saying to me, "But Jeff, I already have a website." Well, maybe you need a little pizzazz in that website. He'll consult with you. Andreas Kalani will consult with you. He'll get you your website updated. He'll make it look good, and then he'll help you. He can do that, and it's not as expensive because he's obviously have, you know what you're doing, and you just need some advice and some help, and he's going to do that for you. And then maybe you're going to do like a, 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 a convention. Maybe you want to have a booth at like the Blade Show or some sort of convention, but you don't have the stuff, all the, all the pictures and all the tabletops and the cloths and all that stuff. He's a graphic designer. He's going to help you get you your, your tabletops and all your information and your graphics and your logos and stuff like that. Andreas Kalani will take care of every, everything, and I want to thank you. Just talked to him a couple days ago. You're getting you're in, you're in boxing him, and you're, you're, you're getting him some, some business, and that I appreciate. And lastly is he is a maker, and he understands what you need. So if you're going to go to Andreas Kalani, a.k.a. Interactive, dot com slash full blast, he's going to give you 10% off because you're listening to this podcast, and he's going to take care of you. Okay, that's all finished. My guest today is one of the most charming men in the world. How do you like that, Fingal? <laughs> one of the most charming men in the world. Fingal Ferguson not only is an incredible knife maker, but he comes from a, he's on a five-generation farm called Gabine. And this farm is extraordinary. Some of the best smoked meats and cheeses and cattle and dairy and, and vegetables in Ireland. It's, I can't tell you how many people have reached out to me to say, I don't think you realize how important Fingal and his family are to the food scene in Ireland and other parts of the UK. Fingal Ferguson's here. We're going to talk about Gabine. Fingal, how are you? I'm good. Thanks, lovey. <laughs> That's very kind of you. It's true. And just to say, just to say that he's got a, they have a, the family, his, his mom, Gianna, wrote a book. And the whole family 
contributed to the book. And it is an ex- it's not just a cookbook. It's the story of the life of, of the Fergusons. It's called Gabine. I'm going to link it in the show notes. This is an awesome, extraordinary book. I read it twice. <laughs> I did. Yeah, it was it was actually one of those funny um, things that kind of came together because when my mom's father, like he was a writer, so we we always kind of uh-huh. knew it was in her. We always thought there'd be this this time that Jane was going to put pen to paper, so to speak, and she said, "I'm going to do a book." And we thought this is fantastic. And then there's that kind of moment of silence, and then she said, "You write this bit, you write this bit, and you write this bit." And we're all like, "Shit!" So I don't. Of- I'm dumbfounded that he, she let, allowed you guys to write, and I'm also dumbfounded how well you, you and your sister and your dad wrote. Everything is well. We, so we didn't well really. We didn't really. I mean, like in the end, like it was. It was there was an amazing publisher, a good friend of, of the, who became a good friend. But it was actually one of the biggest fights I've ever had with my mother. We have a lot in common, really? so we're the ones that are kind of we go clashy if it ever happens. It, it, it's impressive, and I was sort of I think that was baby number three at the time. And um, I hadn't written. Do you know that when we sit in front of a computer and you've got your it's like one of those TV moments. There's the guy in front of the keyboard and nothing is coming out. There's a piece of paper, just blank paper staring at you. And that was it. I can talk forever, as you probably noticed. But if I had to write something down, you know, that first line is going to be crumpled up a thousand times so what i what i did was i literally have you ever heard the expression the diesel nanny when you when you try and get your baby to go to sleep in the car so i yes i know what you're talking about go ahead go ahead throw the baby into the chair went for a drive did a lap baby falls asleep and i took out my phone and i just started to to write and a great friend um put it into onto onto you know wrote it out verbatim and did because i i i'm terribly bad at spelling and everything i think so but that's okay uh, yeah and in the end it all came together and a wonderful photographer and all the other bits that come together but you know books are an interesting element i mean there's this thing i was just saying earlier on there's this thing about books where you, you're about to have to say things you're going to have to live up to it's a, it, it's not going to go away it's one of those right. things where if you make a statement in that book you know you're probably going to either be embarrassed down the road so it was an interesting thing to to almost kind of lay things down in the sand and kind of commit or to, you know, where are we going? What am I, what are my, what are the plans? And the past is one thing. The future is a different thing, you know. I got to tell you, one of my favorite parts that sets the book up completely is your father. Your father's Mm. passage was like, I had to read it a couple times because when I think about the farm, number one, Gabine, the fact that Gabine comes from the word mouth is hilarious. P.S. Oh, the gob. I mean, if you if your gob, if you if you're told to shut your gob, you, you're, it, it, this is kind of the Irish ex, expression. You, you have to shut your mouth. And the bay below our farm looks like somebody took a bite out of the coast. So yeah. gobine, a little, the little bite, the little bite. So that's where gobine gets the name from. And like everything, the translation over over time kind of turned it into gobine. But it uh, is so poetic considering what you do now. But when I was thinking about your dad, especially. He's now you're gonna. Ha- I had a hard time with figuring out which uh, he was talking about. I think it was his great grandfather got the farm, or I think you're you're the fifth generation yeah, of farm, yeah. of people who work a bean. I can't help but think that the 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 gravity of being in agriculture in Ireland, especially through going through the great, uh, the, the great uh, potato, the Irish potato oh, all famine. All the history, yeah, the history the of things. History. Yeah, yeah. There's, I, I think there's one thing that, Ireland is kind of a small place and land is something that people take very seriously. 
and there's a lot of pride and and there's all these elements of things but my parents are quite spectacular and I think they're a very interesting couple and combination because they are an example probably much like myself and my wife where opposites attract and my mum who has this very interesting background and my dad that has this straight as a die West Cork rural agricultural background and the two met and, and I could only simplify as just to saying that I suppose my dad is the doer my mum is the dreamer my dad is the doer so if mum came mm-hmm. up with an idea he made it happen and he still to this day does and um and I think that's the thing. Like, I love my dad's accent. It, it's very strong. It's very thick. But everybody who knows him loves him. He, he, you know, he, he, he's, he kind of gravitate towards him. He's just one of those guys you kind of trust and lean into and always want to go to for advice and everything like that. But um, yeah, he's also quite wicked and fun at the same time, which makes it good. <laughs> he's, also, he's also very bold. Oh, and totally. One of the one of the things I was fascinated by was the er, your I don't know if it was your great grandfather or whoever. When, when Gabin, the farm, first started, you were doing dairy, and one of the people who was buying the dairy was Bailey's Irish Cream. Yeah, yeah. That I, was, had, that was, I was a kid when that was happening, yeah. Really? Yeah. I think what my, was that? I mean, how much, how much milk does Bailey's Irish Cream take from, from, from farmers? That, that was well, that if you think about, like, like any business, you want to be logical. If, if you have a thousand people supplying you, and one person causes a problem, then then I'm sure a batch is contaminated right. or whatever else. So the whole thing was you choose a few and you do it well. So I think what happened is we are one of the few kind of bigger dairy farms around here at the time. And I'd say that's probably one of the factors. Um, but um, I think uh, I, I don't know much about it beyond that, really. That, that that's where the milk went. Uh, but when my mum started making cheese, because my mum grew up making cheese when she was my mum's my parents divorced. They married again one her father was um, based in spain so she spent her time either in in england and in spain in the south of spain and uh so she kind of grew up you know right down south in, in southern spain making cheese and doing all these things and living that kind of continental life that was that was quite fascinating to me and that's the sort of spanish influence that kind of brought so much of the food but she spent her time she's educated in france grew up in england has all this childhood in spain and all these strong connections so i think when you amalgamate all that you have this kind of diverse sort of continental influence and and um yeah i think that that was just I suppose the merging of everything together found itself in a time when in West Cork when I was a kid um, there was, it was there was Cold War there was all these things that were sort of happening so somebody from Germany said um, the safest place in the world to live if there's ever a nuclear war is West Cork because the Gulf Stream is going to blow away nuclear whatever pollution and all kinds of things. I know it's a weird statement. So everybody starts buying houses in West Cork because if you sold your house in the middle of London and then you bought a little farm in West Cork. Then you kind of had money left over afterwards to, to sort of like as a nest egg. So people were buying romantic cottages and they came from like highly educated backgrounds. These are people who wanted to, to, you know, during that time wanted to start over. And the romance of this was wonderful. And people were already doing it and it, it snowballed. And to cut a long story short, I think that you had something like 70, 85% of all the artisan food producers in Ireland were based in West Cork, this one part of the country, part of a county of the entire country. And that was this whole diversity of people who come to live here and the sharing of information, the conviviality and all these things that I was luckily a part of. So I am food obsessed. And I because I grew up at this time when 
passion for food was just the oxygen in the air from people that were just coming in and out of our lives constantly. And that infectious behavior of people of just fuck it do what you love if you want to you know smoke salmon if you want to make sour sourdough bread if you want to make cheese or whatever else you know just just go for it you know these things that are bottomless pits of knowledge you know lose yourself into it and and i think that there was a support structure there and through a series of other kind of events you know it became quite a movement you could probably say Mm. and and um yeah i'm just glad to have been part of that in my childhood I you know I I, th- I think I think a lot about uh, Irish agriculture in general, because you've gone through so much historical I mean incredible inst- historical news besides the Irish potato famine, there was that uh, in the eighties I remember uh, the the mad cow disease that was affecting all the uh, all the problems in in you know. Ireland and the Great Britain. And you know, and all there's those always going to be something, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, but that, was a, that was a that was a global that was a global story. Yeah. I mean, the the mad cow disease was a global story. I even you know eighty four eighty five. It's such a I great like, name, isn't it? Like it was it just 10. Oh, <laughs> well, the, you know what that you know that it, the the whole mad cow is also when you used to get uh, the um, headhunters. Hmm. Headhunters and cannibals used to get it in uh, Indonesia and uh, Papua New Guinea, and it was called kuru. Okay. And it was was these headhunters would eat the brains. Or I don't know if it's the headhunters or the cannibals. Hmm. They were eating the brains infected with kuru, and they were getting mad cow disease. And that's what mad cow disease was. Hmm. I guess the farmers were feeding a lot of um, you know brain matter to their other animals that whatever for whatever reason. Hmm. I mean, I'm sure it was just like thrown in with everything else. And then that's how the mad cow disease started. So. I just I would I would I would imagine that your father and your basically your lineage has seen so much and there's been like these extraordinary moments and and I also think about the fact that as a you know a, well, a strict fan- nothing nothing in life is easy I mean like to be fair there's always going to be challenges and curves and and things that will just come at you and you know what's going to be the next thing I mean for God's sake at yeah. one point remember cucumbers were all trying to kill us because there's a coli in cucumbers and they start putting them in condoms you know everything's now wrapped up in what plastic. They didn't have that. In, they didn't have that in New York. <laughs> no, exactly. Any kind of, I mean, see, that's it, the no, thing. but you know what I'm thinking. Like these are the random things that happen at times and points in different parts. I mean, I'm sure you have stories from your neck of the woods and everything else like that. That that just once something goes wrong, somebody creates a rule to kind of prevent that from happening again. But they rarely take rules away, don't they? So we're now at this point where there's just rules and top of rules and top of rules, and then scale is changing. And and you know, there's always. You know, the whole world watches everything and things go viral very quickly. So, but you know, you just have to learn from these things and just try and do things as honestly and as purely as possible. And I think you get through. I think that's that's one of the things. If you if your principles are in the right place and you know you're doing the right thing and you know heed all the right advice and stuff like that, you should be okay. You know, that's... of course. But if you think about how the Great Famine affected, you know, the the, the almost affected the 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 uh complexion of the united states i mean the amount of people who i mean a million hmm. people died from the from the from the from the great famine and all these uh, just an influx of irish moved to to the united states hmm. to the point where we have such a, an enormous part of our culture is this I didn't, you know Irish I, when American i look culture. at when i look at the window here i can see the town of baltimore the island called long island and coney island are outside my window. These are the last things that um, the Irish saw when they went around Mizzenhead and headed off to America. The names kind of came with them. 
Is that right? Uh, yeah, literally. That's Baltimore, amazing. Coney Island, and Long Island are literally outside our window here. Don't you think? Don't you find? I mean, I I like to think about these things. I like to th- I I look at them in in terms of you know where things come from, and it is a fascinating thing. And I I would just imagine, obviously, maybe you don't th- you're not as like fruity as I am, but I I completely like look at these things and just like there's a lot of gravity to that. Mm. There's a lot of gravity yeah. to that. Yeah. One of the questions I had for you especially is, is because you've had, you know, fifth generation on the, on Gabine, your family probably didn't, you guys started to do the cheese when your mother came in and then you started to do the smokehouse. I find that your father, well, I, a lot of farmers are gamblers. I, the, the, the people I've talked to, uh, Ben Snoor and Jonathan Porter and people who are involved in animal husbandry and uh, uh, Jared Thatcher, people who deal with farms and farm life, you have to have a strong uh, cast iron stomach for for problems that could come up. Yeah. But you're almost a gambler because you're not you're able to take these you're able to make these calculated decisions. But what, there's a lot of it is like out of your control. There's a huge element. There's, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of risk, but at the same time, experience you'd want to see under people's belts. And I, I'm always petrified that I don't have a lot of the experience when I look at what my father knows. But there is this element of of like there is a season and there's a year, and you go through these cycles. And I think that you know, like everything, risk and danger and machinery and large animals and things like that. You just learn to not panic, and you learn to do whatever has to be done, and you develop strong gut instincts, and and you just have to stick by those. Um, I mean that that's it. You know, I think if you're flighty and you're you know, bad judgment calls. Don't ever rush, you know, into any decisions. Sometimes you have to literally, you know. But I, there's so many different people and so many different types of agriculture nowadays that I think you just find your own niche. It's just those who who can do well in it. You know, it's it's probably more about your mental health in 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 an industry that's very hard work. But your your father took a gamble on your whole on the whole farm by kind of changing the direction. Oh no, no, and, no. We've we've never we've never done anything beyond try something as an experiment. And if that works, then it grows. So, for example, like my mum started making cheese, uh, you know, a couple of cheeses at a time in the pot. And when they were sort of selling, um, then we got a bigger pot. And then eventually we turned a sort of a little shed or a pen into, into a, a, you know, a, a dairy. And then that had the room grow next to it. And then a friend used to come and help my mum. And everything naturally happened and sort of progressed baby step at a time through necessity or, or requirement. And the smokehouse many years later was the exact same thing. You know, start making a cup of salamis here in a, in a room made out of recycled cheese boards and a broken bamboo. Marie and and a you know an upcycled cold room make a few salamis realize you're kind of probably not doing it legitimately and then you, you know you know <laughs> when a vet walks in the door and says you know is this sort of officially being I mean, like but at, at a time as well you kind of have to then crap and get off the pot and if you've tested the water and scenarios are there you just have to baby step it I, I think the scariest decisions in anything are always those big ones like okay right. we now need a couple of hundred thousand to build a new factory like that's the stuff if you hadn't tested oh. the water for five or six years before you do that then i i it probably wouldn't happen you know that you have to to when everybody walks run when everybody runs walk 
But it seems as though your father especially believed in your in you and your mother and the ideas that you guys had. Even if it was baby steps, it's still like they were. I lo- what I love is I love. Well, he'll how always say Asher's grand. Asher's grand is a very Irish thing. You know, like that's. What does that mean? Grand, as in everything. Everything, everything will be okay. You know, everything's grand, and it's a big deal to us. It's that whole thing. That's the attitude you always have to take going into everything and anything. You know, just. I just love. I love how supportive I feel like I feel like there's this real degree of support considering based on the generations of how the how the the farm was how did your mother and your never, father never never put yourself into a situation that you can't get yourself out of is probably another oh. thing I mean yeah. always I remember my dad once telling me once that no matter what if the real shit hit the fan you know, the the value of the herd would cover the cost of, you know, there was always this sort of right. parachute that wasn't a golden parachute at all. Right. There was always, I mean, like there's been periods of, of, sort of tough times and everything, of course. But I think the that, that main thing was always never go beyond your means. And that's yeah. that's when you find yourself in a situation that, that is truly horrifying. Just, you know, be aware of what you are and are not capable of. But, but there's also, is, think- you know, just go for it sometimes. But I think I feel like that's a I th- I feel like that's like a mental fortitude that like people in agricultural have, like they understand that they're going to be. I mean, my dad had a, a winery, hmm. and I'll re- I remember we made he made wine, and he was the one of the pioneers of white wine, this specific type of white wine. Well, he was the one of the pioneers of making wine in the Hudson Valley in the seventies, yeah. and he had a grape that was a French hybrid, French American hybrid, and it really turned out great. And he got involved with all these organizations. I remember that he had what we, one year we referred to it as the Christmas massacre. And it was a freeze that happened at Christmas and mm. it killed all, it killed all the buds. It killed everything. Like there was no, that year there was nothing. And it was like this real moment of now, what are we going to do? And the interesting thing was, is he was very, very clever in terms of coming up with ideas. He had been friends with uh, Robert Morgenthau, who was the district attorney in New York, who also owned an apple orchard. They ended up getting a ton of apple juice and then making apple wine one year. And it did, was it great? No, it wasn't great. But was it like this moment of like inner fortitude and kind of problem solving? And when I think about like these moments that must happen on these farms, I feel like there has to be number one, an incredible inner fortitude and a cast iron stomach for problems. But like also this mindset of like, we'll figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think support structure is a huge part of that. I mean, family in our case, you know, I mean, there's myself and my sisters and, and my parents, you know, there is a clan. And like you've been talking about Gabin, but Gabin is 20 something staff. Through the mm. different factors of the smokehouse, the cheese, the farm, the gardens, you know, all this, the, all the people that make the, the, are the, are the part of our family, this group that just sort of makes everything possible. And, you know, that's, that's the one that, that develops over time. And yes, there's always times when cogs can go out of motion. And, but when, when it's working, it is the most beautiful and wonderful thing in the world. And, you know, what, what can be achieved is incredible. And but yeah, we couldn't do anything without without everybody. And I think everybody in our life also brings something to the table. When you see, I think that's a skill as well to see the the the, the qualities in people, and to see those opportunities of what somebody can bring to the table. It is amazing how if you don't ask or you don't or you're not inquisitive or you don't find out what people who who are with you are capable of, you'll never realize that you know so and so was a website developer for years or somebody's actually it was a mechanic or you know these things that people have the skill set that just lends itself straight away 
And um, I think that's the thing that, that, you know, that, that structure is always needed. I wonder if that is part of your family, your family code, because I feel like your father is a very, he, he believes in all of you. Like even reading about when your sister started, one of you know was doing her thing, and then he said, "Why don't you come back and you know grow this garden?" Hmm. There seems like there's this trust in in humanity that he had in all of you. Oh yeah, I mean, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You just go sideways and you just start something yeah. different. I mean, that's it. Like start small. If it goes, it goes. But I mean, there, there's we. I mean, we do too many things, and there's always something right. that's going to be successful, and it's you know there's something that's bound to work, you know, and. And I think like between farmers markets and supplying food direct to people and, you know, once you have multiple facets, like there is the farm, the cheese and the smokehouse, you know, um, the smokehouse being the meat side of things, you know, there's an office between things and we have our, our structure. And so the funny thing is, once you have everything there, it's almost too easy to keep things going and keep coming up with things. And I, I often have to kick myself in the butt to stop sort of like coming up with new ideas i think several years ago i stopped this whole thing of like just constantly trying to be the creator and trying to do things for the sake of pleasing people and coming up with something new constantly you sometimes have to realize what you have already going and keep it simple and i think we've had this chat before about more is more <laughs> right i mean right. I, I love yeah. that expression more is more because more more is more can work in both a positive and a negative way you know more more work can mean more money but can mean more stress can mean more things you need more staff you need more insurance you need more rent but at the same time you have more turnover you know more is more works in multiple facets and ways and sometimes more is more can break you because you're, you're suddenly juggling too many things and i'm, I'm interesting these i'm sorry for interrupting go ahead no no that i was just going to say that i think that was one of the funny things because at one point you know sort of wedding catering having babies starting the smokehouse building the new facility doing different kind of things that were all happening but i was also kind of making the knives and the knives were the hobby that that sort of was like oh that that's me alone this is me locking myself away in a little room to make something that wasn't going to be eaten and disappear and it's those wonderful inspirational people like um like rory um rory connor who's a knife maker up the road who always inspired me the the likes of that video that came out of joel from um cut brooklyn that sort of inspired so many people are definitely me back in the day and i think what they called it the video that thing when vimeo you know that five minute song yeah. that kind of and the inspirational voice that tells you why he does what he does that just clicked and resonated you know th- there's there is these sort of things but the, the knife making was my man cave and, and i always remember yeah when i was my, my turn to take the baby um and you know i'd get the phone call i'll be right there i'm just trying to fix something here and you'd hear the turkey there'd be a turkey from the farm it's only he's like get the fuck out of the milk you know come on up and take a baby you know there there is these things when that you know when you have to do something when you find something that fuels you it's like not you know getting a lego set you have to finish that lego set you know when you're a kid um knives were the same i think there was that point where i you know i picked up a baron and i was making some music and it it didn't sound terrible it's not like i picked up a saxophone and it was horrible you know i made a few knives and they worked as tools so i kind of like hey there's something about this and i'm obsessed with food and this is the tool of the trade and it connected me again on another level to my friends who are also in the food industry so i and, and chefs and everything like that and um so i think there's times when you had those those things that helped you um through the stressful times or the the creative time the outlet i suppose is the thing that was one of those interesting parts of the early years I would be if I I mean because I mean your 
con- contributions to not only Gabin, but Fingal. I mean, your knives are beautiful, and they've been beautiful, and you're successful, and you can't keep them on the shelves. And your contribution to Gabin of the smoked meats and the salamis and the treasels and all the bacons and all that stuff, I feel like I could, when you said sometimes i got to stop, I can only imagine you thinking, I've had two home run hits right now. And now, and now it's like, how do I follow those up? And it's just like, you kind of have to back yourself off because it's like, I love, when, when I love you, everything you're, you're surrounded you've done by to... people that, that kind of constantly can inspire you. If there's as long as there's inspiration in the world and you see the means, if you have the toys and the gadgets, I mean, like charcuterie, the, the curing of meats and making salamis, like there is phone books of the things you can make, you know, and, and do. I mean, like, and that whole thing of not having waste, you know, when you, when you break down a pig, and you have all the different elements and you look all across Italy and Spain and Germany and these countries that have this this fascinating kind of, you know, and, and you're just making bacon and ham and sausage and salami. You suddenly realize, like, why don't I make some cotechino? Oh, I'm going to make some mortadella and I'm going to do some fromage de tête and I'm going to, you know, and you just... So you do this once and then and then you're like, well, I can't keep making all these different things. And that's kind of that element that you have the toys and the gadgetry and the means to make them all. But sometimes you have to keep the <laughs> you have to keep it simple. So I guess I'm just kind of heading back a little bit. How you, you know, your father was on the farm, much like his his father and his grandfather. How did your mother and your father meet? In a pub. <laughs> really? Yeah, my mum, my mum's um, godfather lived here in West Cork at the time, and she came over to visit, and she got a job working behind the bar in Gabe's Pub in Balladahab, and um, my dad was was in there with some friends having a drink, and I think it was pouring. One of the nights it was pouring with rain, and he offered to give her a lift home, and it was really raining, and I remember that um, I think he realised that she was actually staying in a tent. Uh, on, on the property of, of her godfather at the time. And, uh, anyway, he offered to put her up because Gabine at the time was um, a and b like a guest house. And um, I think that's kind of was the start of the process um, of them kind of falling, falling in love and, and the rest is history. And I remember my mum panicked at one point and sort of realised that this relationship is kind of about to take off and, you know, there's something here. And she literally bolted one of those kind of stories where she literally just didn't tell anyone just ran and my dad ran where home back to england went back to henley in in antem to her mum and uh and i don't really know the story and i've never gone and given her the the proper once over as to what that you know but my dad went after her and um went over and that was it that from then on it it was solid your dad has got a strong move (laughs) you know staying it you're not saying that tent. Come on, it's raining. I got a room. Just hang out. I'll leave you alone. Yeah, Don't worry about it. Yeah, they were they were a fascinating couple in a fascinating time, and um, and I think they still are. But it it it, it was um, yeah. I think that there was. I suppose that was the short version. I've been given yeah. very dark, funny, and hilarious twists to that version from various friends. Up there. So she so she spent most of her life traveling through Spain, and and how was her. Her father was a writer, hmm. and yeah, he's she a playwright. Was, oh, a playwright! Yeah, what was that like? Oh well, he he was he was sort of the, the 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 glue that put together a lot of the like that's the Luke side of the family, a fascinating fascinating family, and there's a lot of kind of history on mum's side, and you know, there's I'm often told so much about the the history and how that goes back, and but 
I th- mum did find herself in the arts and she she was actually I think she was working in the Tate I think at the time I might be getting that wow. wrong she was um, helping to orchestrate let's go, let's shows and it. stuff like that let's go with the Tate let's go with the Tate yeah. model. <laughs> let's go with it and uh, yeah so she has that kind of art background and um and I think that was that was just one of the, the, the elements. But again, I suppose like everything, if you grew up with the family that she did, you know, food was such a big thing. Yeah. And um, and I think that's just something that we kind of all inherited here, that whole element of like nothing had to go to waste. There was still like from her side as well, growing up in, in, in um, you know, the, you know, her mum from the other side of the war, nothing was ever going to go to waste. You preserved and right. everything. And then from the Spanish side of thing, you know, you had crops and gluts of tomatoes and, you know, all these things. So you made things, you know, when you have a glut of, of whatever food, you're not going to just watch it rot. You learn how to preserve it. You know, you either share, barter, you know, do something with it. But when you can't do that, you know, or you choose to fill your larder with something that will last through. And that actually wasn't just necessity. It was also you know, something I remember fondly, you know, stools upside down with sort of muslin cloths that were dripping, you know, the sort of the jams and the jellies and the sort of the pickles and the, and the different sort of things. But yeah, the, the our, our kind of house was old kind of farmhouse building with a, the kitchen is the center of everything like that was it i mean still to this day like we as a as a business we don't have agms we have lunch <laughs> yeah you know we everything is sort of around the kitchen table when people are invited they come in to the kitchen table like that's the thing you know the kettle goes on and you sort everything out and and that's the hub and that kitchen is also where sort of there was always like a, a you know a lamb in a box or you know like a healing kind of young lamb that needed to get better or you know it was just one of those farm kitchens but like that's it you know the the the, the center of the hub that's the spanish cuisine and, and you know hmm. most like even now high level cuisine now all comes from this place of not wasting hmm. when i was in uh, barcelona with tomer we were eating a lot of uh their you know cat the catalonian specialty yeah. it's catalonian specialty of tomato bread hmm. uh bread with you know toasted bread you rub some um garlic on it olive oil and then a, a, yeah, peppers a piece and things of, yeah or like a, or a tomato that's about to get thrown out, like a tomato that's about you know it's, it's overripe and you kind of mash it into the into the stale toast, and it's like this use. It's this incredible cuisine based on not wasting. And I can only imagine that when your your dad kind of got a hold of your mom's whole background in terms of not no food waste and making all this stuff, it must have been just like this is for me. I mean, this is like exactly what the doctor ordered. Well, dad, dad's an amazing chef in his own right. Like he's really? still the guy you can, I, I, you know, it took me so long to learn how to make fish, like cook fish. It's funny. It was like my biggest hurdle was always in the early years. Cause I always sort of used to cook it like meat, which made no sense. Um, but the, 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 um, I think like my dad still does solid food. I mean, what I mean by solid food, like the classics, the stews and fish right. and things like that just so well. And so naturally, and my mum brought to the table the equation curries and and sort of big flavors and all these kind of things. So yeah, I think that that's the but yeah that that's where the 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 whole element of 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 things just growing up. I just remember is food. you know what was childhood? Childhood involved a lot of food. <laughs> Excuse me, your childhood. You're such a precocious kid. The first thing you ever cooked was. Was, was pate, duck liver pate. So just let's not, I mean, my first thing I ever made was a peanut butter jelly sandwich. The first thing you ever made was, you. in the book it says that your favorite thing when you were a kid to make was pate. Well, that's kind of easy, isn't it? I mean, I mean, I wasn't a precocious kid making some pate. I was yeah, just yeah. like, yo, but can I, I have some <laughs> Captain Crunch and some milk? 
You know, I mean, come on, I mean, I was barely making scrambled eggs, dude. Uh, I know. I, I, yeah, I think that was when you just see it around you, you just give it a go. But like, I also just fools rush in. I mean, I, I just, yeah. I would often just. I don't know what I'm doing, but fuck it, we'll give it a go, <laughs> you know. And that's that thing of just you know trying. I mean, I've many of my meals, and still to this day, will be absolutely terrible because I just you know I just went for it and winged it. But mm-hmm. then that leads to the vast majority of the time, you know. I think that I come from the school of learning from your mistakes, and yeah. it's the most interesting and dangerous way to learn because you have to go to all the boundaries of right and wrong. To learn boundaries and then that in learning those boundaries, I suppose you won't do that again. Or listen, I actually know that this thing, it doesn't sound like it's going to work, but it's going to work. <laughs> you know. And I often feel compelled that originality was something that maybe I chased too much. I mean, you can probably see it in the knives or, or if you can, I don't know, in food, there was always had to be something that was an individual twist. I very rarely will just clone something. See, but I find that to be very interesting. You say that because when I look at the... I see the Fingal Ferguson knives. I see that part of Gabin. I feel that that's a a logical progression. And it seems as though all the decisions made on this farm, beyond the birds and then the, the, the pigs and then the cows and the dairy and the cheese and the meats... Everything seems like this logical progression. There, I, I see. I know what you're saying in terms of like the individuality, but it just seems it's none of it's inappropriate. I mean, when I say inappropriate, I mean like it seems very natural that this was to happen. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I suppose that's it. There's just yeah. There's a lot of things that just we just keep going, and um, I think sometimes that don't be afraid to ask. I mean, like if you find yourself in a situation where you know you know hey listen i've got i've got a i've got a bunch of cockerels in the yard i've got to start wringing some necks i've never killed a chicken before <laughs> you know you know there is things that you suddenly have to learn and you have to ask and you have to find out how to do something and um there's always that that element and sometimes that's the bit that brings you together with friends and still to this day it's one of the things i actually almost go looking for something i can learn you know and who i can get in touch with to teach me that because that is still something that um you know that you know it's a bad day when you don't learn something. Yeah. Well, I, there's. I mean, I, one of the questions that I thought about the first question I was going to ask you, in, in in on the podcast, only because it was just like I feel like you have an exact answer, and because the farms are so seasonal. I was reading what your sister, what your sister does when she prepares in the summer and she prepares in the winter, and you have those big uh, outdoor uh, tunnels that she puts the stuff in. What? In the season now, it's it's the first week August, for second week August. What is on the books right now on the farm? What's happening at the moment? What are you guys doing now? Well, there's so much stuff that we do actually all year round. I mean, we make cheese all year round, and we huh. the smokehouse is kind of we we have pigs all year round. So there is so much of it that is now a routine. But what you see is the seasonality of things, like perhaps bringing in the harvest, so cutting the silage that that will be the winter fodder for the for the cattle, and sort of my sister's garden is something like that. That's something quite fascinating, you know that that I know nothing about. That she provides so much for us. We have a, a good almost unthought about process of internal barter you know 
Yeah, she she, she raised my cauldron and I raid her tunnels and we. I was about we, to say that's what yeah that's what I was going to say is like she she wrote in the in the article in the in the book that you just come in and just rape the rape the fields you just <laughs> yeah. take whatever you want at least once a month I am shown how to properly pick a basil leaf off the plant or something you know like there is I'm afraid the bad joke that, the, that she she brings things to life and I kill things I've literally had plants jump out of pots and trying to roll out the door. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's I, I the whole thing it fascinates me and, and I love I just one of the things that um, I was wondering when I was when you were a kid what was it like you were you know your mother would would write or your you were write that when you were going on the school bus hmm. your whatever you guys were bringing to eat was a lot different than everybody else and what yeah, was it like would, being on that farm as a kid. Uh, do you know, it, it's great. I mean, it probably just scared the living shit out of anybody else who, who you know, would sort of look and see kids kind of hanging onto the back of tractors. And you, th- you think about yeah. the, the stupidity. I mean, you know, I had a dad, like I said, who would just, oh, sure, that's grand. You know, there is these things where you just got on with it. And I think the only time that I'd always, and I still, with my kids now, are this, I see the same is when it's just family around, that's fine. But when you have sort of young kids kind of visiting or something else like that, then then you, you, you have to be aware of, of what are the dangers in a farm. And, you know, that's the thing, really. You, you, you know, there's nothing worse than that. Where is one of the kids? Because that is right. the unknown. But at, at, but when everybody's around in Inisha, like it's the freedom of farm is fantastic. I mean, you have Lego on a very large scale when it comes to straw bales. Right. And you have these things that you learn, you know, like picking blackberries that are about to come into season and going out and getting field mushrooms. And, you know, there's a lot of romantic stuff and there's a huge amount of hard work. I mean, like the funny thing is, is that that the honorable element of like helping to pick the stones in the field when you're about to kind of plant the grass seed and sort of the the mucking out and all the kind of stuff that comes with it. You know, I mean, nowadays there's a lot more machinery involved than, you know, when I was younger, when my dad especially. So I think, you know, I think the whole thing is is just, yeah, husbandry and awareness and and, and things like that, yeah, so. Because there's, there's, like, there's, I feel like there's so much going on that, like, when you wake up, in my mind, I would think, all right, we have got a lot. I know you have a crew of people who, you know, have dedicated positions, but you're still, like, there is a lot to do on this farm. There is a lot to do today. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I, do you know one of the most important things is, is as long as never put uh, is a, something a lesson I learned from my dad when I was quite young and I wasn't really the hardest worker in the world. And I think it was never put forward a job that you can do today. And you know, if you're like, ah, fuck it, I'm just going to do that tomorrow, was something you get out of your system very quickly. Because right. if you keep, ah, sure, I'll do that tomorrow, those build up and then you find yourself on nervous breakdown territory. Right. Know your means, know your capabilities, pull in and help, you know, when, when it's possible. I mean, like the luxury of, of having people who help us on the farm, it was a, it was a hard, long time coming. Like, like so much of what I've inherited is actually the hard work of my parents before me who worked like it's, it's unfathomable when I look back at what my parents achieved. Because there is so much pressure involved 
Well, my dad's... Ah, but you know, precious, precious for tires and balls. <laughs> oh, look at you. Look at you. Holy cow. Pressures for tires and balls. Yeah. No, I think <laughs> the balls is definitely one that you feel the pressure. Definitely. Pre- <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. No, pressures look, for tires. You, you just, got a, you have a million of them. You got a million of them. I know. No, I'm, we're gonna, I'm, I hope I can get half of those <laughs> awesome pressures for tires If you asked me to list them off, I couldn't think of a single one. They have to come out of an automated response sometimes. I'm hoping, I'm hoping I press the right buttons to get the automated okay. response. I'm, gonna look for, I'm looking for it. Because I, I was saying is with my father's winery, the vineyard wasn't a big vineyard, but there were these moments where it was expected that we had to get a certain amount of pruning done or mm. tying the vines up or preparing for the harvest. And because the, you know, the harvest wasn't a specific date. It was based on, you know, you're checking the residual sugar of the grapes every mm. every week, and you're trying to fine-tune exactly when you're going to pick them, and then the harvest was such a big production, and there was so much involved. It's like you said, you couldn't just say, you couldn't just say, well, I'll do it tomorrow. There was very this, like, I remember, you know, there were a couple summers where when I was older, I was staying at my dad's place and there was like, we had some week, we had a, we had a time, we had some deadlines on a week. Like by Friday, you got to get to this row or we got real problems. And I would just imagine that every day you have that with just so many different things. Hmm. Yeah. There, I suppose that's it. You just, you just do it. Don't you? I think like the, the, the routine is, is one of the things, but I think, I mean, I always used to think that I hated routine. And I always thought, yeah. like, with, you know, but then you kind of realize with kids that how much you kind of want them to be original and strong characters. And you can probably hear them now. I'm going to have to shut the doors. <laughs> no, it's great. No, I love it. I love it. Yeah. I love it. But the there there is this this thing where actually there's times when you actually need structure, routine and, and principle to kind of know to know where you are and what you can achieve and what you have done in the past and, and that kind of side of things. But look. If if needs be, you, you just work into the night and you catch up with yourself. Just knowing that point where yeah. you have caught up with yourself, then 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 that's all good. You know, it's just knowing when you when when things are about to fall apart and go wrong. You know, that's when you pull in big guns and favors and friends to help you out. Know your boundaries. It's back to that again, isn't it? So t- bring me to the point where you decided that you were going to start making smoked meats. Well, do you know? Okay, so I suppose my childhood job as a kid was was to actually drive the cheeses back and forth. So my my some we're like the third farmhouse cheese in Ireland. Like there's amazing Melines and Doris, and then Gabine. And they're all friends. My parents and and the Steels and 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 the Bates family. You know they. So between that whole kind of thing. I used to take the cheese out to a wonderful guy called Chris Jepson, who was out in uh, two villages away in, in Goline. And this is a guy who literally built um, a boat to catch the fish, to smoke in a smoker he made himself. He had wow. his own veg in the garden. You could only get to his house at, um, at low tide because at high tide it was cut off. Oh and it was, it, you know, it, it, he's a, a wonderful character. One of those kind of people like... Um, uh, Jay and Silent Bob type didn't talk much when he talked it was beautiful you know yeah. <laughs> and he um, so what was amazing was going out there and I'd collect the cheese that were smoked and then leave the next one and this rotation would happen and he eventually um, led to a point where he was going to retire and he said look I'm just going to cut back from this and he gave us the blessing to build the same type of smoker on our farm and it's sort of a solid fuel kind of it basically you're taking beech and oak and you're smoldering it down in a certain type of kiln in these rooms where everything's hanging so it is beautiful like 
picture perfect in respects that things are hanging. It's not kind of a metal box with sort of drawers right. in it. You know, there, there is, it, it is kind of like a dark black hole of sort of stalactites and tights of, of sort of tar. And, you know, it, it is a black yeah, hole. Yeah, no, the picture you sent me that I'm going to use as the cover of this is that I feel what you're talking about, the black room mm. with these hanging, well, hanging see, the, meats. It's just Like very these amazing. things come from a tradition in Ireland where I suppose to preserve food, you know, and it was, and like everything, most good things come from accidents. So like the, by hanging, you know, a, a leg of, of ham or bacon up near the fire, you know, you were sort of smoking at the same time and that changed the acidity of the surface of it and stopped mold growing on it. Now, if you salt the shit out of it and you smoke it, you've got something that can last. And then next thing you know, you realize as it dries out, you can eat it raw and you find that other countries, like definitely not Ireland, Ireland never fermented foods, really. We were sort of salted and, and you know, we were meat and two veg kind of country. But if you look at the right. continent and you have that. So um, when Chris retired, we built the smoker on our farm. I helped dad build it. So therefore, I felt this connection to it because it's one of the first things I really did, you know, in respects to, you know, bar just playing on the farm i felt like this is something i built with my dad i passed him a hammer at yeah. least twice you know? <laughs> and, and so in building i felt a connection and dad is great for seeing these in, in these opportunities in us and it's like there you go you like the smoker and next thing you know yeah uh, jane grigson who's this amazing lady um quite famous in her own right and tradition for restoring tradition so she um we used to use the recipes in the book um she was a like a friend of my grandfather's so i used to open that book and there was the brines and there was the recipes for all the pates and we always had pigs in the farm and so by actually again this whole thing of not letting it go to waste just make sausage do some ham do some bacon and because of the spanish connection said hey i'm gonna try and make some chorizo so i literally um started to to sort of put it together and followed the sort of recipes and in true fashion that was me was I would double all the flavors and not understand really what I was doing but fuck it we'll give it a go and so one of the things I found after all these years of fermenting and playing around with things and stuff like that was that you know consistency is really the thing you want to learn if it's going to become a business you know this is something I found way too late in life but um I think my mum was sort of very much involved with slow food which was this this movement that was sort of um it's like a celebration a convivial kind of group of gathering of people that sort of started off by carla petrini in 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 italy and kind of became quite an international kind of thing and still to this day goes you have amazing gatherings and it's a support structure for a lot of smaller artisan producers but at the same time it also celebrates people who just love food yeah it works on both sides of the scale and and so Growing up, I'd do these trips to Italy with mum. I'd meet these amazing people. And I think the Italians are great to tell you, like, listen, you have the best cheese and meat in, you know, and you're covering it with all this pepper and this juniper. And, you know, all right, take it back. You know, when you, if you're going to use really good raw ingredients, don't smother that, you know, so you learn balances. Right. And I still, maybe I still do. I still use big flavors. But that's the thing. Eventually, over time, um, of all this curing and um, and doing things as kind of hobbies like my parents had started making a couple of cheeses and snowballing the smokehouse because the name and the brand was kind of out there people started asking for it and um yeah i i at one point i came back from new zealand where i finished my what they call the green cert in ireland if you're going to ever inherit a farm you need to have the green cert which is basically a form of education that um you know, with that piece of paperwork, you don't get hit by 
inheritance tax. It was a very clever way of saying to the Irish, listen, I know you're going to go into farming, but you have to go and educate yourself. (laughs) That's great. And so I finished mine off with work experience in New Zealand. And when I came back, it was like, hey, why don't we build a a smokehouse? We'll build a little like kind of shop um, production house. You know, I'll live upstairs. We'll make things downstairs. We'll stop people coming into the farm and just kind of cut them off from the driveway. And, you know, because there's peaks of summer. It's a very touristy area down here. So what we'd find in the middle of summer, you'd be inundated. And then in winter, it's a ghost town. Um, hmm. So I think like that's why so much of the businesses down here are kind of interesting because you have so much local business in summer. But in winter, you have to learn how to still fend for yourself or do things or actually supply to the rest of the country or, you know, send stuff up to Dublin or whatever. So I see. Yeah, the, the, I'm sorry. No, you're saying I was just going to say, like, just that's kind of how things all kind of happen. Built the smokehouse. Actually, do you know, a lot of people always give out about their the, the, the food authorities. They always say, like, that's they're the ones who are stopping me doing this and the people are stopping me doing that. Uh, there's a lot of that, but. I'm actually hugely indebted and still to this day to every inspection and audit and person who gave me a hurdle to go through. Because if you do want to ever look at it as a business, you realize that no matter what rules are out there for a reason, rules are out there to stop cowboys doing something dodgy, but also maybe inhibit somebody who wants to be a little bit more artisan. But we know that it's a word that gets abused, isn't it? Artisan. I'm an artisan. But what I mean by an artisanal product, something that's a little bit more trickier to make that takes a huge amount of gut instinct and and you know where things can fail and go wrong if you don't have that knowledge base or the ability to take the risk and um and i think that i was made mature very quickly by people who saw my potential to just be romantic and not practical (laughs) well you know in in gabine in the book you talk about how you test when you're in this the smokehouse the whole the meat section when you're talking about how you raise the animals I was I was I wasn't surprised, but I was very impressive how you you test you're constantly testing the meat for salmonella for trichinosis for oh, all the oh, yeah. you're, you're, I mean, you, you can, you're very, very I mean it's very I would imagine that it's very very difficult and very important I mean well do you know what it, that's the thing in the end if somebody gets food poisoning in a restaurant right the one of the suppliers that supplied the restaurant or in the restaurant itself you know who 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 was at fault you know now there is pieces of the puzzle if it happens in multiple places and you're supplied to multiple places things can kind of come back to you but in the end the person with the least amount of paperwork is the one who's going to be you know in trouble the person who doesn't right. have a HACCP that you know the you know i'm sure you know HACCP. Sure. you know the person who doesn't have his paperwork in order who doesn't have things to fall back on to prove that he was doing what he was doing because you could be doing the best thing in the world but if you can't prove you're doing the right thing and, and doing it properly it was you because you can't prove otherwise so i think one of the things you realize is that the hardest thing nowadays for anybody in a, in a startup business somebody wants to start making food is to is to realize that no matter what you're going to at some point or another have to you know do all this like listen people who are really good at food and artisan kind of type people are usually shit at business and terrible at paperwork right. and people That's who are right. really good at paperwork and crunch the the numbers and do those things aren't really got that little bit of a finesse to take things across the line of being superiorly quite brilliant you know you need those things and i think the downfalls that i have and what i what i can't do i mean like i'm numerically stupid to all hell and i have so many pitfalls but you know my get my gut instincts are kind of good in in respects but i realize what i don't 
have going my way to help get somebody to help me to do that so i mean like i said once that team kind of develops you know that's why you got to support and help other people who are starting up because nowadays you can't really start off in the back shed to make salamis and supply restaurants it just can't be done right you need to have right. hygiene lobbies and blast chills and paperwork and chill vans and all these kind of things so yeah the farmers markets was a big part of things the turning point for us and i think ireland there was when i was younger i mean like literally i remember being told by somebody like warning me like are you, are you should he really be making salami you know i don't think it's a good move it might be a bit daft you know it shouldn't be doing something a bit safer and you know he really was concerned for me and 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 made some good points and stuff like that but but at the same time i felt drawn and compelled to do it and farmers markets were taking off and i could load things up into the back of my van and go into skibbereen town or bantry or up to kinsale or cork and these kind of towns and sell my wares and do a week's worth of business in a couple of hours and come home and make some more and go to the next farmers market you know if you have a shop you do you do a bit of business through the entire week but imagine knowing there's a window of opportunity to farmers market to do a lot of business at a peak of time farmers markets was the sort of the logic and, and like there became a point where you couldn't get into a single farmer's market because they had the footfall. There was f- people who had, like I said, who'd moved to West Cork, left New York and Spain and Italy to live in West Cork. And you saw these opportunities to, to like make a food that, you know, wasn't in the area. And then people started gravitating to it. People used to bring me recipes for their bratwurst from their mama's recipe, you know, and yeah. This emotion was flooding out from people who saw some salamis and cured meats because it wasn't really in the shops then or, you know, and or if it was, it was imported cheap stuff, you know. So I, I, and people always want to support somebody who's passionate and starting off. And, and I think I remember so much of my food wasn't consistent. It wasn't perfect. But that adventure of bonding with people over it and listening to their advice and, and coming back afterwards and saying, look, I heard what you were saying and I put that in, that becomes a lifelong customer and companion and someone that supports you from the very beginning. I mean, the, the cheese is like nearly 40 years and the smokehouse is nearly 20 years I've been at it. Wow. And, you know, that you couldn't do it without that, that, that farmer's market element and still to this day it plays a huge role. But back to back to what you were saying before, and just for the for the listeners of the podcast, a HACCP, there's what's called mm. a HACCP plan. Hazard analysis and, and critical basic- control point. It was designed by NASA to stop astronauts getting the shits when they went to space. <laughs> I wish I wish I had known that. Really? That was it. Literally, I, I think it was it was NASA who said, right, what are the lists? Find all the things that can go wrong and make a list. Now, with that list, make all the things that can prevent those things from going wrong from going wrong. Now put it into a small little shitty chart and make that your rule to live by. (laughs) Because that's what, I mean, when you go to, I used used to have to go to the health department to take classes. Actually, my my business partner now, uh, Tony, and I, Atsi, he was the head chef at this restaurant and I was at at another bakery and we just happened to be in the same class together and we were happy because we we, we knew each other. But learning those HACCP plans, the health inspectors, uh, one of the crazy things is like, I... The health inspectors, my father and I, when he when he was at his winery and I was at the restaurant business, in the restaurant working for restaurants, we both equally hated the health inspectors. Hmm. My dad would have in his winery, he'd have the health inspector show up and they would count the bat turds. <laughs> and my dad 
my dad would have these conniption fits because he's like, I got this guy and he's he's on a ladder on the top of the vats counting bat shit. And it was it would drive him crazy to the point where I'll tell you a funny story. The, guava, the guano gives a little je ne sais quoi to the. <laughs> I mean, he had these steel, these stainless steel pots, but he was just like, yeah, this, this, this is beyond the white the gloving. Shit. This is beyond white gloving, isn't it? Oh well, I mean, my, obviously, <laughs> if my dad, if my dad had, if my dad had bat shit on the vats, yeah. I don't think you should blame the health inspector. That's not a health inspector issue. But I definitely remember I had real fears of the health inspectors, and part of it was because when we take these health inspector classes in New York City, mm. the health inspectors, half of them were vegan. And the other ones, when you really talk to them about did you go out to your friends to eat, they would always, always say no. They've gotten to the point where a lot of these health inspectors were so germophobic mm. that they were unci- they were almost uncivilized. Like they had no I think, trust I think of this, their this friends. This is the thing about it, isn't it? And, and, and what I mean by this is, is that that you can fall in love with food in two different ways or or, or and and food involves microbiology and all these other elements right. of it. and it can be both fascinating or scare the living shit out of you yeah scare the living shit out of you these there's a microcosmos i mean what, what what we see as stars in the sky is like bacteria in the surface of things now those yeah. bacteria i mean who what was the thing i saw the other day people are extracting certain yeasts and things from did you were you talking about this on knife talk about I, yeah, armpits armpits and that making was, cheese from, was, from 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 parts of bodies and stuff like that that was from the full blast podcast with owner honor and, yeah. and ben we i found this article about people making cheeses from goddamn armpit bacteria oh yeah you've breast milk ice cream and like i love shock factor food i mean listen i i i'm eating candied bugs and all these kind of things okay <laughs> I remember Good. getting into a lot of trouble. I, 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 I got into a lot of trouble once at one point where um, somebody asked me what's the strangest food I've ever eaten and I said I've eaten beaver. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was the way I said it. I think I didn't nail it there but the, uh, the way I said it it was a waitress I think in, in a restaurant and I, she thought oh. I was taking the piss and I actually sincerely meant it. It is a dark chewy meat and it was very salty. <laughs> uh, just, everything kept coming out wrong and I just... That's fine. I don't blame you. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is what it is. But back to, back to my Microbiology. The, I've grown up with with seeing people who understand too much about pathogens, and listen, yeah. we're, we're back in there again, of course, with the, the local trend oh, of, of things. But um, the, when you actually, I've also fallen in love with with the wonders of it. Um, so if you think about it, back in the day, gung ho, let's fucking chlorinate the shit out of it and kill. You know, let's. This is sulfur dioxide. This will kill bacteria, and this is how we preserve with preservatives and 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 chemicals and kill things and so on and so forth. I think that what happened was that through education, uh, you actually have people who studied and mapped the surfaces of, like, there was one lady came to Gabine and she was mapping the surface of her cheese to get her thesis. And she literally painstakingly, and I'm not joking when I'm talking about phone book style, you know, this fungus, that yeast, this thing, that, you know, these, these yeah. are the spores and the yeasts and the blooms and the things that, the, 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 everything that grows on the, on the surface of a rindwashed cheese. And it is like counting stars in the sky. And she found um, two that had never been logged and, and named and mapped before. And this is a big deal. This is like finding a star in the sky. So she called one wow. Gabiniensis and the other one was called Gabinii. And I remember her doing this whole thesis. She proved it got written. She got it named after her. She got her thesis and she, you know, went, went on to do wonderful things. 
Um, but I remember her ringing my mum and telling my mum the story. And I've never seen somebody's head actually swell in front of me <laughs> in such a wonderful, prideful way. My mother had her own bacteria. <laughs> you know? That's, I mean, it's going back to, I mean, going back to your family in terms of... Oh, but of, I, I just wanted to wrap something up because the, the interesting oh, sorry, thing about gabiniensis is that it's a listeria inhibitor. So the thing is about that is that it actually fends off... Um, the pathogen listeria it is part of that whole thing that nowadays you actually find that you don't need to put preservatives in they've actually found natural um microbiological there's there's natural ways and yeasts and things that you can put into your beer and your wine and your cheese that will actually inhibit and strengthen and support your gut and you know it's like the more you learn about these things the more you realize that cosmos that world the more you learn the more you realize you don't know and i think we still will continue right. to learn from that but what i mean is that that there is nowadays ways of making cheese more buttery and beer more whatever and wine and i think that that's something i've been quite excited about because we try to make food that's kind of quite honest you know we really just have you know there is a curing salt in the bacon but apart from that you know and, and a little bit in the in the salamis but apart from that we don't put in anything that doesn't belong there and you do find that there is now lovely natural yeasts and things that can just do things for you and i that's when microbiology becomes beautiful and i have friends who do pickling and fermenting and you can just the flavors that will come from something through a fermentation that you do not like why the hell does this sweet corn or i'm not i don't know this pickle taste like something completely different and you're trying to repeat it and it doesn't happen you know it's it's fascinating is that the hardest part? I mean, I think about like you, you know, your you and your your family make cheese and smoked meats and hams. Is that the hardest part? Is the consistency of things that like seasonal, are out of your seasonally speaking, and and quality? Yes, I mean, you, you, you know, I think I fucked up so many times starting off that you know, like listen, a cheese when it starts off, if you eat a gabine that's two weeks old in the middle of summer. It's soft, it's bouncy, it's light, it's it's kind of taste of the milk and the grass. And, you know, you have this element. Now, if you take that cheese and you, you kind of age it on another couple of weeks and you kind of, the, the rinds kind of develop a little bit more, it becomes more fungal, more earthy, more woody, more, you know, there's this sort of stronger flavor. Now, if you wrap that cheese up and forget about it in the back of your fridge and don't touch it for several weeks and take it out, it's got a completely different flavor. And, you know, mm. you know the, they are little living things. You know, Tamagotchis, those little toys that you'd keep alive and feed in your in your pocket and, you know, the silly little stupid key. I remember. Yeah. Yes, I you remember. Know, I make food that are kind of like Tamagotchis. You know, the food that can, you know, you can fact pack a salami it can last for months you know you take it out it'll become rock hard be like a drumstick in 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 you know if you just leave it out hanging in a room right. without doing anything to it but fermented foods and, and cheeses and these kind of things they are you know they will change and alter and you're that's why you have to develop these friendships and these relationships with people like the the neil's yard dairies sheridan's cheesemongers and all these amazing places that we supply our, our cheeses to the people that that take that cheese and know how to look after it and will provide and get it to the customer in a great condition you know they are the people who are who are our champions because they're making us look good and those people who put our food on the menu in their restaurant and provided the cheese from these people you know it, it's a series of events to kind of to execute that because it can go very wrong i mean you can have a cheese it's just not having a good day it was just wrapped up badly and forgotten in the back of a fridge and you know served to somebody it's not going to be the same as somebody literally going into a curing room and taking a cheese off the ripening shelf and giving it to them you know that there's there's different experiences 
So I think about it because my f- I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no. Give me have a chance. I'll just keep nattering on. So it's good you asked something. <laughs> well, I, I think about when my father's my father's vintages of his wines. Hmm. They were always different every season, and a lot of it was because he didn't want to. In the beginning, when he first started out, he didn't want to add extra sugar he wanted all hmm. natural sugars was it was so, was there sort of natural wines around that time i mean are, are you sort of following that was, whole natural he, wine movement at the moment yourself i you know what i we did it was not natural wine he did add sulfites yeah. and i would i didn't really know about natural wines until i was in barcelona with uh funny story enough when i was with uh Potomer, yeah. he took me out for this incredible meal probably one of the best meals i ever had in my life i believe it and um, he said, we have to work tomorrow. We had to do this class. He says, so we're only going to drink natural wines. And I said, what is a natural wine? He goes, it won't make us hungover. So we drank. <laughs> it like, depends we on drank, how much like, you drink. <laughs> dude, we, I was just like, are you kidding me? you telling me this natural wine is not going to get us hungover? He's like, don't worry. All you want. I think we had two bottles. Yeah. And which is not a lot, but it's still the fact <laughs> we had to grind knives the next day. It wasn't. And I was stunned at how. How, how light of a hangover I had. Of course, we ate yeah, this th- th- There's a gamble and... with natural wines, but there's a beauty to it because there is this thing where the, the instinct of the maker has to shine through even more. And the fact that right. it's going to change. I mean, cider is another one that can be like that. If you don't chlorinate your apples before you make your cider and you're working off the natural yeasts, you're going to get different variations constantly. Um, but I think with the wines, I don't know a lot about wine. I love wine, but I, I really... I know what I like in that kind of respect, but the, my family, for as long as I can remember, have always kind of bought this one bottle of wine. Uh, the red and the white both come from uh, Albert in Neue. It's this this kind of this, this this wonderful wine. It's a it's a Demeter wine, you know. So it's a kind of a very honest wine, and literally, it's that one you discover that's just so easily drinkable. You wake right. up the next day. There's no red lips, and there's no sort of hangovers, and it's a very natural wine. And, and you know, we just buy it in a large enough quantity between us all. We get it for a good price, and. I let people who know wine more than myself, if they bring wine to dinner, that's amazing. But I sometimes don't want to go on those gambles of getting it wrong. And, and I, you know, and I often kick my butt for that. And I, I still get blown away by amazing wine. But there is adventures when you talk to people about wine and what it can do. And the, the people that fascinate me, fascinate me now are the people, the natural wines. And like, why does it taste like oranges? <laughs> you know, right. these right. these whole things, and oh, it's it, that passion. It is it is fascinating. I think the, the oh, p- by the way, to the listeners of the podcast, if you're in the United States and you want a hot tip, if you want a very very reasonably priced, very good drinkable wine, Parallel Forty Five. Get some Parallel Forty Five. You won't regret it. That just a side note. I had to throw that in. Why? What I was getting at is, is my father's wines would change every year because of the because of the sun, mm. because of the how much water we weren't adding, we weren't watering the fee, the, fee, the the vineyards. It was based on the the summers that it was. So mm. there were some real hot summers with a lot of sun. The, the residual sugars would be very high, and then you'd have a much fruitier wine. Kind of his wine was uh, the the grape varietal that he grew was called Saval Blanc. Mm. And it had a very, very, it was a very, very close to like a Sauvignon Blanc, mm. like a Sancerre, something like that. Very fruit forward, lots of like tropical fl- fruit, like uh, almost like pineapple, very floral, super easy to drink. 
drink when it's ice cold in the summertime. Yeah. But then there were these summers that were, you know, then there wasn't a lot of sun. Maybe there was too many leaves on the on the vines, and the residual sugar was very low. And then you'd have something closer to a char- a dry Chardonnay. What I wanted to know was, is based on the fact that you raise your pigs and you feed them what you feed them, how does the seasonality of the meat change? Does it have? Do you have batches where? Well, we, we're, we're your, kind their of years of change, or without kind of getting into, it, I suppose the smokehouse is a, there's a collection of farmers who rear for us. Well, we I set up something called the Piggy Co-op, which was a collection of like-minded farmers to try and rear um, for us in either big straw pens, predominantly in winter, and also there's outdoor rearing, much more so in in the sort of the the, the warmer parts of the year. So with these kind of combinations, it's just leaning towards a bit higher welfare and because i think the thing is is that if you're making salamis and all these kind of cured meats you know again it's like we had really good milk to make the cheese the raw materials are very important so i think the thing is is that we we kind of have been growing over the years we're now kind of using about 20 or so pigs a, a week in the smokehouse and they're from never from just one source there are pigs in somebody else's or three or so kind of lots from farmers a lot of of pigs in different farms that have all come through the um the local laboratories and things and that we've brought them all together but they're all part of the collective co-op and what i'm leaning towards and aiming towards doing is kind of creating a bit of consistency because these are small farmers i find that right. the people who rear for us and that are rearing on a regular basis are providing us with the best pigs like our, ourselves and those farmers we work with a lot and the ones who do it randomly throughout the year and almost like kind of hobby farmers or have a couple of pigs can be a little bit more hit and miss right. because there's actually nothing easy about it and i'm kind of like the guilty butcher you know i i, I understand that there's a toll there's an emotional connection to actually you know you know using pigs and going through the whole process but it's yeah. something that i'm kind of good at and it's something that i suppose i've connected myself to and i've learned over the years so i just want to kind of get better at it and i think what happens is that if you have multiple pigs coming from different places you have they'll all merge together where it'll balance out because it, the smokehouse is divided on sort of you know the, the the five days that we're in there monday to friday um Monday we butcher, Tuesday we cure, Wednesday we make sausage, Thursday we're slicing the bacons and all the cured meats, Friday we're making the salamis, and in between that we're packing, we're wrapping, we're making brines and gures and doing all that kind of stuff. So when we're butchering on Monday, basically we're we're doing all the the, 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 the meat prep, but you can actually, listen, these pigs were lean, these were big, these were indoor, these were outdoor. It, in many cases the salamis will be a mixture of that, and that got instinct of using so much meat to so much fat and knowing what to use and where to put it is the experience of time and with the staff that I have at the moment and that amalgamation of things has kind of made it easier for us because salamis are minced you know I I think that when you look at the tradition of Spain and Italy and these places that are a lot less forgiving and there's but there's so much more experience and quality behind the good places that that um you know i think what we're trying to do now in the past 20 or so years there's generations have been doing salamis and cured meats in spain the good places and i think that we ireland went from everybody having a pig on their farm to like probably no one really like very rare do you it's the, the the higher welfare thing is 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 not as predominant as you'd think so we're trying to encourage that and kind of get it to come back and but it's not simple it's not easy and um no so of course not. so yeah we're just trying to make it easy again and I, there's a few people in ireland and i think 
the one thing is no one's a competitor in, 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 in somewhere like Ireland. I think that we like the cheese world. If if we if we was if we were the only cheese on a tasting plate in, in, a, in a in a restaurant, it would be a very boring cheese plate. You know, it's amazing that we have blue cheese in a burrito style and a, a gouda and a sheep's cheese and something runny, something, and like that mixture of the cheese board, I think helped when I was like growing up. I just seen that that variety and the camaraderie between the different producers kind of almost put Ireland on a food map. And I feel that there are, uh, farmhouse cheese in Ireland is kind of a, a thing out there, much like it is in France and the tradition of cheddar in England. You know, Ireland has kind of a reputation for that. And I think the salamis was a very odd thing because there's literally three or four people, I think, doing it in, in, in Ireland on any kind of scale. And one of them is really utterly huge. And then there's myself and that two or three other people. Me. Well, salamis aren't. I mean, you can, it's not something you can really do on a small scale. Uh, what I mean by that is you can't romantically kind of do it and then supply it to a shop right. or a restaurant. You kind of have mm. to have a certain facility for it. And I think that the, it's far too easy to just buy in commercial kind of pork because right. it's it's consistent and it's available and it's definitely on a quality level. It, it's good, but there's the ethics of things. And I think the thing is, is that what makes, again, the German, the Spanish and all these amazing, like really high end kind of salamis and meats is how those animals are reared and the quality from that. And I'm so like kind of conscious of wanting to pass on our farm better to my kids than it was passed on to me and as a traditional process. Not that it wasn't passed on. I mean, it passed on amazingly to me. But that's an ethos to live by, passing them on better than you got it yourself. And wow. I think I started off something as a gung-ho kind of aspect. And I suddenly realized I can just do better. And I think the thing is, is that I want to. But at the same time, I think I was gung-ho when I, 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 I ran when I should have walked. And now I'm going back to walking because I want to perfect and get better. And I think, yeah, predominantly kind of do something I can pass on and be proud of. But that comes with age. Age, I think that comes with age, the idea of like backing off and just trying to go back and simplifying as opposed to constantly trying mm. to innovate all the time. Yeah, well, right? it's also something like there's 10 steps to making salamis. I mean, you have your butchering, you have your 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 your, your fermentation, there's the smoking, there's the aging for several weeks in, in, the, in the rooms, then there's the packing. You know, I'm losing like so many different steps of, of tweaking to get it right. But the whole thing is, is that if you take one of those things out of the cure, like in making cheese, there's the milk and the process, but the curing rooms for two and a half weeks. If you overload your curing rooms, you affect the cheese. If we if we fill the smokers too much, if we're if you throw one of the things out of kilter, you know you can you can damage the whole process. Just like back to the grapes and the vines and the whole process. You know you you know you can only plant so much and you can do so many things. So you kind of. If you get greedy and you try and go too big, too fast, or you try and do something, then you can throw off the equation and pay for that in a bad way. You know, that's, again, experience. But remember you were saying about the, the, the grapes and the sugars. Do you, know, right. do you know the lovely, the ice wines? You know, those tiny, very expensive, I, but beautiful dude, ice wines. I was going to bring the ice wine story up. Go ahead. Yeah. I love it. The, I was, the, the Rieslings, they do a fantastic variation of, of the ice wines, I think, with the Rieslings. And um, I, somebody was telling me about how they actually can produce um, ice wines in Australia. I was like, what? Like, that, how the hell so is just that? let's back up yeah. for the listeners. So ice wine, they call it ice wine. Ice wine, mm-hmm. ice wine, but they call it pronounced ice wine. So there are certain types of grapes 
that go very, very sweet. Mm. And they're usually referred to as a late harvest Riesling. You're harvesting them in, in, if it's in the Northeast or whatever, September, almost October. Sometimes they'll almost, they don't look like beautiful bunches. Sometimes they're like half of the bunch is rotten. They're so heavily concentrated with sugar. Well, there's also the connection what, where the ice and the frost actually damages and denatures the sugars and can actually, isn't there something about that, that the ice plays a well, huge role in the process of actually so, changing the sugars in the grape, and that's when you harvest. It's the trickiest thing because for harvesting ice vine, yeah. what you have to do is the traditional way is you wait until there's a frost, mm. and then you're harvesting at night during the frost and what happens is, is there's something happens with the frost mm. and how it how it uh, separates the the water of the mm. grape from the sugar and the sugar at the level it's at it's almost overripe it's almost too sweet and then that something to do with that that frost will change the profile of the ice wine and make it very very sweet it's a dessert wine and what these there were these there was this controversy my dad made late hmm. harvest recently he didn't make a lot of it because it's such a it's such a gamble it is it can all go wrong the birds. yeah it can just oh, rot in the vine I mean, it rots when you're harvesting it half rotten hmm. and so what the ice what these guys figured out how to do was if you couldn't predict when, I mean, obviously you can't have 20 guys ready to harvest at midnight because you don't figure out when you frost. So these dudes would get hoses and they would hose, they would know when it's going to get cold and they'd hose the whole fields down and to kind of push the uh, grapes freezing so they could harvest it at night. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was very controversial because all of a sudden it's this not, it's not a natural act anymore. anymore. It's like this man made making, the, ah, the but it keeps going because I, I heard that the version in Australia then was you can actually, I think it's, you could call it scarifying of the, of the vine. You actually sort of nick half nick the vine and therefore restrict the water. So, oh, and you sort of, and that very actually again starves the vine, and the wine, and the vine then goes into an autopilot of trying to save itself. But therefore, right, the grapes right. get altered, and then you you harvest that, and you make your your ice wine with that. I mean, this is the thing of the boundaries and the abilities to to adapt to to create something kind of wonderful. But like, yeah, no, it's it, it's it's the the one. Actually, I got a funny story from you. Once we, um, when I was at a food festival in in Kerry. And I was with a bunch of friends and it was one of the slow food events. And we were down there um, with our stall and salamis and cheeses and being sold. And a friend of mine who who um, was doing a food stall next to us, next to us he was doing um, spiced Moroccan dog f- catfish with couscous. And it was it was fun. He was an amazing chef. Wow. And, but he brought with him a case of Prosecco, which we proceeded to demolish during the day. So we're all... Yeah fucking legless i think by the end of the day i mean I'm, these are teenage years for me and yeah. friends and we're at this food and it was just listen party on like we were having this amazing time and this this um we're in the middle of the of the sort of the the ceremonies at the closing of the event and this amazing lady who had a presence on her she was a beautiful lady was at the top of the of the sort of thing and was being introduced in this she had in her hands this giant sort of magnum of a very special wine that her her family produced and that had miniature grapes grown on a miniature vine that was uh, pressed yeah. underfoot. That was in in a full moon. <laughs> it was everything right, you could right, take the box right, of everything. Right, very very special right. bottle of wine. And there was a raffle, and we were just in the door, slightly wobbly and tipsy, very much so. And then we, as we go into the door, we, we we got hit for the raffle. We put our money in, and maybe they didn't stir the bucket properly. I don't know. Whatever happened anyway. She pulled out the winning numbers, and it was me. 
And all I remember oh. is these four lads let, you know, at the back of the room let out wolf whistles. <laughs> and I start doing the sort of the Rocky Balboa, da da da. You know, as yeah. I kind of run up there, covered in dog, catfish, and salami and cheese, and smelling Everyone's like mortified. smoke. And uh, so I'm sort of doing the, sort of the happy dance as I go up through the aisles. And. Uh, I get up there and I can just see this lady about to hand over the bottle of wine. And I remember Mortified. seeing her white knuckles holding onto the bottle. And she just said, before you, you know, when you open the wine, you will let it breathe. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I grab the bottle off her. I start walking up and I'm walking back and I hold up the bottle and there's three lads at the back of the hall. They're going, yes. And I'm halfway up and my mum steps up, grabs the bottle out of my hands. I'll take care of that, darling. <laughs> And oh my god! And, and and I can just see the full lads crumble. Everybody, the old plans. I think she ended up keeping it for like some special anniversary. I ended up drinking it many Good years. For yeah, her. I know. But it was, I, I was hoping you were going to say the, like the sigh of relief from the lady who sees a responsible lady taking a bottle of wine off her. Yeah. In my mind, you're walking back and you're already taking like the cap off. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. is like ass slapping the bottom of the bottle to try to make the cork explode out. You know, yeah. <laughs> who's got a, Who's got a, Who's got oh, an up in yeah. yeah, see, I, I would that would have been hilarious. You're walking back, you're pulling the cap off, you're pulling out the, the corkscrew, you're jacking it before you even like get to your seat. Oh, oh the, the bad behavior and the fun. I mean, that's the that, that's the thing about the whole element. I mean, we're we're blessed with with wonderful cultures. I mean, like some of the amazing events that we've had over the years that kind of bring food and and the people all together. Um, Ballymaloo is this amazing place. Um, here in in, in in Cork and it's very close friends of the family and they had this amazing event called Lit Fest. It was literally a literary festival but just for cookery books. And for years that was one of my favourite events. There's several other ones, the Big Grill Festival and you have the, the food on the edge up in Galway and these places where people would come together but it brought internationally people into Ireland. And uh, actually, it was something like six or seven years ago. That's where we first met Francis Malman. You know, you know, we were setting up our food stall and somebody comes over to our stall and they're like, Chef Francis Malman wants to wants to get somebody to get up at three o'clock in the morning to help him with the fire. Who the hell am I going to get to do that? And I said, I'll do it. I'll do it. Wait, is that the guy who likes to burn everything? Yes. And okay. I was one I of those, too. Right. You know, this is let the, you know, and I think that was the that was one of those those events where, you yeah. know, you still had these things. I mean, basically the people all coming together and and you know just the most amazing food festivals and um yeah that was i think one of the earlier points for me where the knives sort of really started to take off and and you know it's thanks to events like that this this reminds me getting back to it you know when i was reading about you know how you know you were saying you're, you're leaving steps out in the book of bean you you talk about in great detail how you make your salamis and your there's changes of temperature at a certain mm. time and you're checking and you're che- the changes of temperature for a couple of days and and all of a sudden it dawned on me that your sausage making was a very easy transition for you into knife making because mm. it's so it's everything is vi- I think all your well, experience there's a game has plan, made isn't it very there? easy for there's you. There's a game plan. There's a structure. It's strict. There's strict. There's strict structure and points mm. that you have to follow. And I feel like I almost feel like when you maybe when you started making knives, you had this basis and foundation of understanding orders and operations. Well, that came later. I think I like my up. earlier knives. I wasn't actually heat treating. I mean, what I mean by that is like my very early knives was sort of like fixing old ones or asking my friend to heat treat right. them or sending them off to get heat treated. But when I got into metallurgy a little bit more, I wanted to understand things like you, you, you know, that that element 
of the process was fascinating because again it was another rabbit hole you know that you can get, right. fall in in love with and, and into and boundaries and how you can screw something up or make something special all in one moment but um yeah no i, th- I think that the some of the elements that have helped my food side and the knives come together is probably systematically looking at it like okay let's today's a, a handle day let's prep all the handle materials right. here's a cut them all out day profile the blades and working in batches and processes and structure and foreseeing where we're going to run out of something or um what you know making sure you know have the every all the ducks in the road bringing your hassop into the equation you know do i have enough liquid liquid nitrogen is the foil there is my i live in the middle of nowhere i can't really pop into a car and go and get something you know nothing was even in the country you had to kind of import all your foils and your metals and you know things like that so i suppose that's something where i suppose in some ways for for me in a converted animal shed you know it to to turn into a workshop i feel quite productive as a one-man band with a couple of people who help me um you know largely due to i suppose the process of well it becoming being a process i this is something that i think you know the, the makers in general are a lot of times they learn something, they figure that they like to do it and they keep doing it. Hmm. But a lot of knife makers didn't have a lot of experience as metal workers before they started making knives. And they never were, a lot of them never worked in metal shops. I, I get questions that are just like, to me, I worked in a couple of metal shops as a fabricator for enough years that for me, I don't see this as a knife shop as much as I see this as a fabrication shop. And similar to you in terms of your order of operations and then your this today's handle day and today's I feel like there's this you, your experience on the farm and making cheese and making you know the cured meats mm. you have this understanding well actually when I first started doing batches of knives part of me thought about it more like when I was cooking I had to spend a couple of days at Oriole my, my, my chef uh, my partner Tony was the chef there and how you go about all right today now you're gonna now you're gonna julienne these carrots and that's it you're not gonna go from start to finish mm. you're just gonna do one thing and I really felt use that that knowledge and that uh, methodology when I started making knives and I would imagine for you not only having that was a real it allowed you to you know uh, scale up on a much more easy level well, because I've never, you have I've this... never taken orders like there's very rare that I actually take an order I'm a very selfish man I literally am making knives yeah. for myself and if there's somebody who wants to buy them and then that became a waiting list but in, in that whole process I think I really deal with emotional issues of worry about other people and what other people think and I want to do right. right. And, and that's probably my driving force and probably why, I, you know, giving a shit makes you give a shit, you know. you know. But you also don't make sausage or cheese to order either. No, I no, mean, no. It's, that, that's it's yeah. a logical well, we're, progression. We're blessed that we're kind of, we're at capacity. We can only make, you know, we, we our orders far exceed our production on, on, on the cheese and the salamis at the moment. And we're incredibly grateful to the support and, and everything that we have that. But like that was a long time coming. But I think that the, the knife side of things, do you know what's kind of funny is, in, you know, I often kind of look at how to be efficient and those boundaries that we kind of, that do, you do or do not want to cross. And 
you know, I'll always do that. I mean, the thing is, first of all, I want to keep it fun. I always want the knives to be right. fun because it is a side thing. If 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 the fit hits the shan, you know, I have to I have to stop knives and focus on the farm right. or the other things, the priority, bill paying, multiple job, employment, connection, backbone stuff that is really important, you know. And knives at the moment isn't that, but knives bring me some of the most enjoyment and because of I suppose the the creative output that that still brings it constantly and i'm fascinated by by things like i suppose the trendiness of knives my god you know like we why are we talking about trends like like you can almost see in foods like, oh you know um what's that thingy cast handles and different types of fat carbon or you know crazy fiber or certain types of steels and these trends that go around certain shapes and the drop points and you know these things yeah. i'm i'm amazed to see trends and almost finding myself in the coat couture of of sort of knife stuff can be shits and giggles at the same time you have to make honest tools but isn't it fun to make that one that's a little bit out there and something different and um and I think that that creative stuff is fun, but you know that's back to not going too gung ho. If I wanted to sort of mass produce a couple of hundred blades, and I realized that actually they're all kind of wrong or they're not kind of where I wanted to go, I'm still feel like after so many years, I'm still trying to refine it and find the perfect thing. But even then, do I want to mass produce it, or you know? I got to see your list. You sent me a list, and I'm very excited to have one of your knives come my oh, yeah, direction. I've been wanting one for quite a while. I, when I looked at the list you sent me, and I looked at all the different styles and different shapes and different profiles and different things, I could see this level of your enjoyment when you say, I make them to, for fun, that I can imagine that there's this duality with the meat where it's like it's the chorizo is going to be the chorizo. Well, look, and the salami is not going to make that much change. That, that thing of, of, of reaching someone's expectations is, is right. horrifying to me. If somebody really wanted something specific, it's, it's a pipe dream in their mind. This is the knife that they really want to have made. They're going to pay that bit extra because having something bespoke made like that is going to cost more because the backs and the forths and the communications and the special sourcing and the time and everything that will right. go into that. And then you make it. And, you know, it's 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 not really what they wanted. Isn't the kind of thing I can just shrug off. That guts me no. because I'm too invested in, in how they're going to feel about it more than I am about the knife. And I think that the process I've discovered is that by actually having a large selection of knives and when that person's turn comes around to choose from those knives and there's there's enough there. Yes, there's going to be disappointment if there's nothing on that list that they really wanted. But if people know what I'm producing now and, and they see the enough selection and there is one there that they want, then that gets literally wrapped up, put in the curry and with them very quickly. And that instant gratification, which has come after a long wait, <laughs> is something that, yeah. that is an interesting process. And I've found a love-hate relationship. Like there is a huge stockpile of knives that I always have at hand. But I'm constantly chopping and changing and making different ones and doing some hidden tanks and some bread knives and i always think it's dangerous when i come up with a new type of knife because then i feel i have to have a range of that but you know good to have them at hand when there's um, somebody wants to take some photographs or if there is a special occasion or something that kind of comes along you know I, i i i don't know i think it's a saving grace it's a flawed system but it works for me and and I think maybe just having worked with people for so much of my life, I want to make people happy, but I don't really want to get too 
much into the creation of one product for a person i just find it stressful and i so i don't mind creating stress in different ways but i'll try and avoid that one but the interesting thing is and i wonder if you could say all right somebody has one of your uh salami somebody has one of your knives Mm. are you going to your prop i would think that you would feel more vulnerable to criticism on the knives because very similar to art you know when you make a knife you're 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 vulnerable you're vulnerable because this is you've given everything you have to this object I, i know that out there in life somebody will hate my cheese and he'll be standing next to a person who loves my cheese and somebody will have some of our salami and and not really like it and the person there's all types of people out there now, luckily, I think if we can consistently produce something that we're proud of and, and we feel that works and, and I mean, maybe our worst crime half the time is it's not ripe or old enough because, you know, we're probably not making it fast enough of it. But the I think with the knife side of things, what one person hates, um, you know, another person will like There's the, Thank God the world is full of diverse and different and wonderful people. And I think that's why it's nice kind of having for people to have a choice. And I find that I give a money back, you know, swappable guarantee with anybody who buys a knife from the world. Now, if you don't like it, send it back. We'll get something else. Very rare happens. I think if you provide enough information when they're during the during that buying experience, like you saw on the list, all the specifications, all the details, all the information, everything is kind of there. The, and, and I suppose the years of, of practical feedback from people that you actually want that that you trust that feedback from kind of lead to a product then then i think that's it but i'm not concerned if somebody wants to swap back and and send it back and and change around but luckily rarely it happens but um yeah. i think yeah I, I think the one thing that sometimes bears in mind is the gung-ho versus the the i i, I think again do you remember the film chocolat um and uh, somebody i didn't watch but it. you, you, you probably know the story about somebody it, who walks into the room it. and she can give them a complete once over and case out that you know this person likes prolines <laughs> you know? i think that there is this element of instinct you kind of know where if you can get advice you learn it over the years at farmers markets you know somebody comes up to you they're not going to be the type who's going to want to have their ass blown off by a spicy something you know or they're they're not a gooey stinky cheese type person you know you 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 lead them towards a nice little gooey domain de bress and and uh, which is a nice runny cheese and uh, and give them a bit of venison salami and you know you know that that thing of 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 learning an instinct towards somebody and you know and it's, it's probably cheeky to think you can you know give somebody a once over and assume but instincts will over years teach you how to gauge somebody and at least start off somewhere in the right direction and then learn as you go and i think the same thing that happens you can tell maybe straight away from even the way somebody speaks or talks or communicates that you know is this the person who literally wants to cut down a tree with a knife and is a sort of a smash bash you know split up chicken stock kind of bone kind of person or are they literally this is um a razor blade on garlic um dinner is a process and i want you know the you know a precise light delicate knife and i think that 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 i don't do much communication but i've often on a few occasions i have actually stopped knives and i think instinctually asked the right question to somebody and got the you know that kind of thing you know i don't know where i'm going with this but i think you know what i mean you're a pleaser too because 
you know, growing up, my dad used to drag me to farmers markets, and I hated it. I hated everything. He hated. He kind of liked it because he got away from the being in at the the winery, and he liked schmoozing, and he felt like he was a big shot with you know having people taste the wine. I hated it because I didn't like. I loved it. Dealing I, I, with the having people. the right company. That's why I want to get to. Yeah, I think. I think the funny thing is, is that now I'm probably, I've stepped back from it a little bit. I think literally there was a point where. I passed the reins for many of the farmers markets to my sister, who is incredible. And I think something magical about having my sister, a member of the family behind the stall, is very important. And thank God she wanted to do it. And I think that there's beyond that, there's also other friends who work for us. I, I think the most hardest job to fill in, in, in the job is the person who's behind the counter. And we're blessed by yeah. the people who are doing that because they represent us. And But also they make that experience fun because listen the way to somebody's heart is through their stomach if you can give that sample i mean probably not so easy nowadays but if if you can give that sample to somebody or tell the right joke you know listen if you want to tell a dick joke in the middle of the market to the person you can tell they're going to take a dick joke very well you know that's the joys of the farmer's markets knowing when to lay that one out there and the, the the crack and the blast you can have and the community of the other stalls and the things there and the people i used to have helped me um you know, do the food events and things like that are powerful people, people, because, you know, lighting fires in the middle of the night and cooking up things. And I like I also would help other friends doing like there's amazing friends, Wildside Catering, Ivan and Ted and these people that I, I, I can't think of a happier place. I would sooner help my friends there cooking at an event than I would sit down at some at in a restaurant to be behind the guns and, and in in the mix making the food because first of all you get to eat all the best bits you know the one where you can flip a chicken over right. and have the have the oyster oysters you know right. that that you know you know sneakily you know during the whole thing and you know those are the flavors that i chase more than than um foams and smears and sort of all that kind of right. stuff I, I think that yes there's a time and a place for that but my happy place is perhaps earning that food and that pleasurable bite and that you know the hard work that's rewarded with with um yeah the whole experience speaking of chicken oysters and all those like the chef's bits and stuff like that what was tony bourdain like um he was oh so one of my kids is trying to call me so the um he was he was fascinating one of the one of the interesting things the oh Oh, sorry, you still there? <laughs> I know this is. I'm gonna. Sorry, I'm gonna. We're gonna wrap it up soon. No, We're no, wrap okay, it up no, soon. no, no. It's actually one of the kids has got an iPad and he's calling me on that. No, the, the, do you know what? There, there was. There's <laughs> been some amazing. Um, there's been some amazing experiences in life, and I think that the the fun thing about the farm that kind of literally there's cows on the grass we're making the cheese we have pigs that we make into salamis there's the garden where we have the herbs there's you know we're in picturesque part of west cork it's cannon fodder for cameras and we found ourselves yeah. on a list and where you know board beer will send us and that is you know but there's times and opportunities where where you know something fascinating will happen and one of those things we got the phone call that you know Anthony Bernane was doing a, you know a trip around Ireland and and, you know, he was a hero, you know, of mine. And, yeah, of you course. Know, what a fascinating gentleman. And I kind of thought, you know, I, I do honestly believe that expression, you know, don't meet your heroes. But uh, when he rocked up, um, very quiet, calm, easygoing. I was waiting for the like, OK, he's going to be magic in front of the camera and then not give him a flying fuck and get his whole thing in the can, get in the car and go. But far from it. Um, he literally was engaging 
fascinating. But one of the things I think my mum nailed it was that, like he really was was, you know, that writer in, in him was actually probably the most predominant, the intellectual kind of aspect of him. But, um, you yeah, know, he 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 was he was stunning. And to have met him at that time in my life and, and, and the whole thing was fascinating. So he was doing two parts. He was filming on day one. And they were going up to watch do some road bowling, which is where you literally throw the equivalent of a cannonball up a road, and whoever can throw it, it's like golf, but on a main road with a lump of metal. Yeah, fascinating sport. And uh, they were going to film that, and I didn't think I was going to see him, so I went out with a few friends and had many scoops of beer, and uh, they rocked up, and I got a phone call at eleven o'clock that he was in the pub and to come round, so I met him and a, another friend who was the the fixer, and we proceeded to to continue drinking. And until the all hours of the morning and I woke up the next day with the most foul fucking hangover because it was like whiskey on top of beer with somebody who knew, knew oh. no limits. And it was in, you know, in, in a good cozy pub with the fire and the whole thing going and I, he wasn't going anywhere and we just had some crack. So the next day I literally I can still see the photographs. I am like a fucking ghost white flop sweats <laughs> trying to put on the best side <laughs> and you know but yeah no that was that was that was an amazing experience and i think there's been many kind of experiences kind of like that and i think that's the wonderful thing about about the, the food i'm still pleased but you know the 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 food world and the craft like that the knife the, they both have brought different people but the passion of both those parties is is unique and merge them together it's, it's infectious Food writing, I've always enjoyed food writing. Uh, Kitchen Confidential came out when I, when I just started culinary school. And it was just like, it was amazing. His writing, his, his, his nonfiction writing was exceptional. Mm. And he created this, he created this very, it was very Hunter Thompson style. Mm. It was about the debauchery. It was very, um, it was very, it wasn't, I mean, it was controversial to certain, certain people, but it was very bombastic. It was easy to read. He had such a, he had such a com, uh, command of the, of the language to create these just visceral stories and everything like that, as opposed to other food writers that I used to like to read their travel writings. It was, you know, relatively boring and stuff like that. I found, I find him, I find him to be, when you talk to a lot of cooks, he, he is divisive with a lot of people because he was, he had the ability to be very critical and funny hmm. and savage and well-spoken, but very natural. Yeah. I, I really, it was, he, he, what, what, what did he film? Did he film Gabine for? Did he, oh, was it was, it something, so, was it, um, I, th- I think they were doing a kind of a typical Irish trip, which always involves a little bit of Kaylee flicking oh. dancing and, and a couple of pints and some oysters right. and mussels somewhere. And then well, I think we were probably the token farm. <laughs> but oh, right. but it, it, it kind of became a bit more of a, of a sort of a less tacky version because the, the, the fixer at the time, Yoke Productions... You know, they they put down some rules saying, "Listen, we're not going to make Ireland into the the, the joke of the sort of the." Right. And but he gave them a bit of what they wanted, but at the same time, you know, kept it a bit more real and a little less right. bullshit, blowing smoke at people's asses. So I think that was something, right. and and then combined that with Anthony Bourdain, it was it was kind of fun. So we were we were the the farm the farm food producer because again, like I said, like at that time there was that whole thing of the sort of the artisan foods and and things that was kind of a movement, but like. Like everything, I remember growing up and I felt like the, the food producer was sort of someone that was kind of being respected and was something that was of, of, you know, that's why people kind of moving to rural areas to get into things. And then I think that the time of the chef 
you know, it's which is still fascinating, isn't it? When you actually think about it, like you go from Fanny Craddock and sort of these these amazing legends that have like you know that, that to now how many cookbooks and food shows and channels do we have dedicated just to 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 that whole element? I, you know, there is the thing where the chef became a celebrity, and but the the merging of the two was always going to be and is always an important thing and now there's a third wheel like the potter that throws the plates and the whole things everything needs a story to make something more powerful i mean literally if you go to heston blumenthal's yeah. restaurant and you sit down and you put on the headphones so you can hear the sea while you're eating your seafood you know it tastes more like sea right oh my god that's a little, that's a little strong yeah, i know but you know what fuck it if you do it you do you do it you know <laughs> listen you're not gonna do it every weekend cool. you know but when you yeah, do it once, it barrels. makes sense. It is true. I mean, like, the thing is, is that we are all senses. But the, you know, the thing about about the execution of perfection in something, I mean, if you do want to get on board for that ride, you know, you can go on some pretty crazy adventures. And I think sometimes the story and the connection of things, like, listen, if you're a guest at somebody's house and, you know, and somebody really is the sort of the person who wants to put on the whole show, you know, you, you you know, somebody's gone to the farmer's market and, you know, the fact that they can meet a person and tell the story about where something comes from. Because, listen, maybe you don't know each other. You know, you're having the dinner party with somebody who's isn't very much a business or anything. you got to have something to talk about. So why not talk about yeah. that element of, of thing that brings everybody joy, the food and the connection and tie it all together? So I, th- I think that, that the, all these, these elements are, are, are part of something that, that you can, you know, like anything, just that passion. As long as somebody's passionate about what they do and they do it well, and, and, and then, yeah, I think that will always go through, you know, go on. And you just want to see those things survive and, and kind of, yeah. Can't get much better than that. Can't get much better than that. So what's next for Gabine and Fingal Ferguson? What's next? Um... I just keep on keeping on. Uh, do you know what? The, I suppose in many ways it's, yeah, what is next? I, I, you got some big plan. I, I can't think that you got, this, you guys have had plans for the last 20 years. You got plans. What's refinement, the next perfection, plan? and improvement. You know, I think the thing is at the moment, I feel like the, like I was talking about earlier on, the piggy co-op is something I'm working on a project to actually bring this to other producers so they can, they can, I mean, we're, we're one of the biggest in Ireland, which is probably quite embarrassing for Ireland. If you think that we're actually a small setup. So what I want to do is kind of working on a system at the moment with, with great people to develop, um, a app and a website and this thing that can kind of help other people to also use that system to use more higher welfare um and then so we're being guinea pigs for that to kind of bring that on um so that's something that's kind of at the moment i'm thinking about building a new workshop for the knives probably about somewhere on the farm still haven't found the site but i'd like to kind of maybe get stretch my elbows a little bit more um there is I suppose we're we're building uh, an extension on at the moment in our house here. There's there's kind of you know there's five kids, so I'm sure we can do it with another bedroom at some point. Oh my, <laughs> you're unbelievable. I don't know how you have time for kids and turkeys. Well, and we geese have and we are blessed. We are blessed that my sister Rosie and and there's a lovely lovely guy who lives in the farm, Leo, who helps us with the kids. That means and and they are they are a pleasure to be around. I mean, the thing is, is that five kids isn't really as much isn't that much harder than one kid in some respects you know you know if you think about it one or two kids but as soon as you have five they start to entertain each other it is very true i think it's just until they start fighting then there's teeth and hair going everywhere but (laughs) but the um 
I, th I think that the entertainment factor is fascinating. My wife is incredible. I'm somebody who definitely, you know, uh, does not deserve the amazing caliber of woman that I've married. She's fascinating. And I think she also is the person I'm the most scared of because make me makes me want to be a better yeah you know that tacky phrase want to be a better me but i know exactly what you're talking but, about uh, i think that's uh, rising you're trying to rise to the occasion well, I, think just, I can't get away with with any other way and i think the thing is is that she doesn't right. make me but it makes me want to not be the, the, yeah so i think that all these factors coming together yeah i think there's this there's always going to be something a little bit of construction improvement i mean i feel that that you know there's, the world's going through a lot of wobbles and I think we need to always try and do the best thing we can for ourselves. If we can do something better, you know, like there's always kind of like, can we get rid of plastics? Can we change the way we do our transportation and our packaging? Can we do things around the farm? Can we build a biodigester to do more environmental sort of aware stuff? You know, things like that in the farming will always be our future. And I think it will definitely be for the next several years and onwards. I think it's a huge part of our future. So I think that's going to be the big side of, of the future for Gabine is just how to be a more logical, ethical place, producing something original, traditional, I suppose at the same time. Um, yeah, so I think that's it. Bingo Ferguson, you said it all. My man, I'm so glad we got you on here you're a fascinating guy i consider you a friend i can't wait till the world gets back to normal and we can start traveling because i want to definitely come and, and oh you have you to i mean this this is this is the, the the skipping stone of adventures when you catch up with everybody yeah i think that's um i'm afraid of i'm afraid of you getting me too hungover but i, I i'm actually yeah, on the wagon I'll, at the moment I'll I'll I'm, I'm, i've been off booze for the past couple of weeks so um but i think i try and do that every so often a little purge that's good <laughs> so guys Go. I'm gonna put a link for buying the book Gabine by Gianna Ferguson. Can you still buy it? Fingal's mom. Yeah, you get it on Amazon. I'll put it on Amazon. I'll put an Amazon link. I got it a few months ago, and I'm I'm stupefied at not only the recipes but the stories. The stories are very rich. It's fascinating. He shows they show you how not only how to raise animals, how to make sausage on a high level. It's 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 fascinating. It's a great book. So go go get yourself Gabine so if you're. If you're available to support Fingal, support him. And, and Gabine, uh, definitely check their website out. And uh, Fingal, you're the man. You're, 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 you're just a – when I talk to people about you, the first thing people say is when I talk to Tomer or when I talk to Craig – the first thing I'll say is he's one of the nicest guys you're ever going to talk to. And I agree. Well, if, if I can slow down and calm down. and I'm always like somebody who's had too many coffees sometimes. <laughs> well, Gabine, I mean, it's perfect. Gabine comes from Gob and, you know, <laughs> yeah, yes. I, I think it's very ironic. <laughs> I think verbal, it's ironic and diarrhea, poetic man. and beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. Look, no, no, I, believe, no, no, no. I believe in Listen. karma. I think that's one of the things. You give out what you get, you know, or you get what you give out. I think that those are the important things in life. And I think it's very important. I've often seen so much stuff return. And but they also the amazing people in our industry. We are blessed that, that there's so many amazing, fascinating people out there in the world. And just uh, keep on reaching out and finding these people is, is important. You're the man, guys. As you know, you're gonna follow Fingal. He's verified, so go follow his ass. Make sure. I mean, for the, you get, you know, all of a sudden, all these European knife makers are getting verified, and all us Americans are just like, now what? What about us? But we'll see. I know, we'll figure the, it out. The, 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 I'm glad it's kind of happening. Actually, I think that's kind of interesting because yeah, the, good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, we're, you could you couldn't. You couldn't find a better person to be verified than Fingal Ferguson. Fingal Ferguson. I literally, I think, friend, I think after great. the discussion of when you guys were talking about that, I actually tried it for the crack. 
and I said, "Do you know what you were talking about? How hard it was to get verified?" And it kept, and then I, I ticked, I, I tried the tick thing, and it worked. I said, "No, no, no, something's wrong. It's broken." Something that, this is well. You're welcome. <laughs> then you're welcome on behalf of Knife Talk. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. We are happy to help. Anything we can do to help is our pleasure. Thank you. And there you Thank go, you. guys. Next week. Uh, the return of Nico Tavernisi. We're we're playing. We're we're, we're telling. We're telling this. I put playing the story of what happened to me a couple weeks ago, and it'll be fun. We have coming up. We have Steve Schwarzer coming up. Leah Arapach. I got a couple guys. We're going to line up. It's going to be great. Uh, and uh, please, please, please support Axwax. Axwax. Uh, us. Get yourself some Axwax. Full Blast Ten. AK Interactive slash akinteractive.com slash full blast go get yourself your website squared away and we're going to see you next week with with Nico Tavernisi Fingal once again thank you thank you have a great evening you too the full blast podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax an all natural food safe wax for coating your handles it can be used on your axes your knives or even on your boots with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, if you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.